namo tassa bhagavato harahato samma sambuddhasa namo tassa bhagavato harahato samma sambuddhasa namo tassa bhagavato harahato samma sambuddhasa homage to the buddha the blessed noble and fully self enlightened one <coughs> so um <coughs> uh, just uh, roving around the topic of you know meditation daily life practice and all that i suppose one interesting uh, question we might ask is one of these if questions but um you know or why didn't but one of those why did, why didn't the buddha return to lay life once he'd uh, become fully self-realized. <clears throat> Good question, isn't it? <laughs> um, well, I think practically he'd um, become used to the wandering life. And uh, the first people, remember, that he taught was his old companion, <coughs> who were also uh, wandering ascetics. And they very quickly became sort of members of his order. You know, very shortly after that, very quickly, um, people wanted to follow him, uh, become his disciples. And the first ordination, as it's called, was a simple word, ehi, come. So somebody said, well, I'd like to, you know, follow your teachings, be with you, join your sangha, see your community. He just said, ehi, come along. When the Sangha was established, then the second type of ordination was established where people took refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, which has now become the lay way of uh, uh, determining uh, your commitment to the, to the Dharma. And then by the, by around about, I suppose, well, they say about 20 years. For 20 years, the people who joined were of high caliber. Then it began to slide down the slippery slope. <laughs> and the ordination then became quite a, a long one, maybe half an hour or so, in which certain questions were had to be asked, such as, are you still in government employ? Are you in debt? Are you a man? It's a very interesting one. Are you a human being? <laughs> so various sorts of people tried to join the order. One of the reasons, just as a, a little side was that um, the great court physician um, would treat the Buddha's monks free of charge. See? And of course, occasionally people would join the order in order to be <laughs> treated full of charge, uh, treated without charge. So one of the questions is, are you sick? <laughs> and uh, the rule is, you can't, uh, you can't ordain somebody who has certain illnesses. You know? I remember a sorry case happened with somebody with age, you see, came with age, wanted to join the order, they weren't ready. So uh, very quickly he, uh, he formed this particular grouping. But early on, um, you know, was very shortly after his uh, realization, he did go home and um, hugged his mother or his stepmother. Um, 
and met all his family, his extended family. See? And of course, that was the moment when his um, wife said to their child, Rahula, go and ask your father for, for your inheritance. So obviously there, there's some feeling that the Buddha's not going to come back to lay life. And he wants him to give his, make him the heir to his, father, to his grandfather's fortunes, etc., etc. But the Buddha, of course, ordains him. <laughs> that was his inheritance, the Dharma. Uh, and uh, there are two charming discourses. The, the one when he's given when he's about, I don't know, 12 maybe, something like that. And the Buddha's, you know, giving him all sorts of reasons why he shouldn't tell fibs. <laughs> it's a lovely little one. And then later on when he's 18, and he's obviously struggling with perhaps leaving the, le- leaving the monastic life, and eventually, uh, he also becomes uh, fully realized. So, I mean, apart from perhaps that practical reason, um, it would seem that, generally speaking, once one moves towards end game, um, really nothing there to draw one back into lay life. And um, that's just one of those things that happens, I suppose. But on the other hand, there are lay people who become fully self-realized. Uh, one that I remember is a cobbler, you see. An ordinary old cobbler <laughs> becomes fully self-realized. So um, why is it, I mean, one question is, why is it that there weren't more people who were self-realized who were lay people And I think the reason there is the ambience that you're working in. The Buddha talks about lay life being dusty. That's the word he uses. And if we just look at our society, you can see that um, most people just aren't on a spiritual wavelength. So when you work with people like that, there's always a drag. It's not, they're not supporting you. You know, it's like there's a constant negativity towards what you're trying to do. I mean, consider being in, a, say, somewhere like Saudi Arabia or one of the um, virtually all Muslim countries, and you yourself want to do the five day, five uh, times a day prayer and all that. Well, you wouldn't be considered silly or stupid, right there in the middle of the office. You know, they'd all join in probably. See, and that's what we lack in today's society: this sort of support from other people in our in our ordinary lives. And uh, I'm always at pains to say to people that the jewel of the collection, the Satipatthana discourse, which is the fullest discourse on how to become liberated, the actual techniques, what we're practicing now, not in its detail, but in in its general format, was given to the people of Kama Sadhamma, they were a, 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 a tribe, you could call them, I suppose, or a clan or whatever, called the Kurus. And they lived in what now you would recognize as roundabout Delhi. So he traveled quite a bit, you know. He was all over the place in that, on that Gangetic plain. And uh, he'd been up there and given, and given them some teachings. And when he returned on this occasion, he was uh, uh, taken by the fact that they were actually doing what he'd suggested. <laughs> And very mindful, and they weren't. There was no well talk, yeah. The gossip, there's none of that. 
and no argumentation, all that sort of stuff. So he delivered to them this Ekkayano Mago, this one-way path leading to liberation, which we now call uh, the Vipassana-only path. To them, the lay people, not addressed to uh, the monks or anything. So he himself had no uh, doubt that a lay person could become liberated. He wouldn't have done that otherwise. He'd have given some the general discussion which he would normally start with for people who hadn't met him about um, good and bad, karma, the gods, living the good life. And only when he felt that they were ready for it, he'd hit them with the Four Noble Truths. <laughs> he didn't start with that. So, so here he's got a ordinary people. I mean, we're talking about uh, you know, pre-industrial societies, farmers, you know, living, living communally um, with a sort of um, committee, a committee ruling, a pastoral, more of a pastoral society. Although there was a great movement at that time towards uh, cities, monarchical rule, so the, the politics were changing. And, and there was the rise also of the merchant class, which hadn't existed before. So he lived in times which um, were changing, not as viciously as ours, but definitely changing. And it was felt by a lot of people, I think. That dislocation when you get times of change, and that was one thing that, that I think fueled the, um, the amount of uh, men who went into the forests and lived the solitary life. There weren't that many women, partly because of the uh, sexism, of course, and partly because of the danger. So. And um, so there are, there, I think there are practical reasons why he didn't want to return, but I think that uh, also there are spiritual reasons that at that level nothing attracts, nothing attracts back into that form. Mm. But he gave very clear pointers as to how um, we can turn the lay life into a spiritual life. And um, in my uh, e-reminders, which I think all of you get and read diligently, yes, thank you, <laughs> I'm uh, going through a day in the life of, you know, and just uh, sort of delineating how uh, it's possible to turn everything into a spiritual practice. So you're doing the same thing, you see, you're doing the same things, you're still getting up, you're still dressing, you're still brushing your teeth, you know, it's like it's not you're doing anything different. But somehow the attitude with which you do it is what changes. And that's what turns it into spiritual practice. So even here now, you see, I keep stressing this business of eating. So before, we're just eating, you know. Um, either our minds are on reading the newspaper or, or we're, we're just gobbling or we're overeating. But suddenly, eating becomes uh, a real spiritual practice in itself. Both by way of developing a certain attitude towards um, food, seeing it as medicine, seeing it as uh, nourishment, and yet not denying the pleasure. This is the point, not denying the pleasure. There is pleasure, that's fine, you see. But not doing it for that reason, not doing it for comfort's sake. And the important thing to remember, you know, is that the psychology of that runs through everything. It's not just with eating. I mean, we're talking about dependence origination. We're talking about the distinction between the point of Vedana and the point of Tanha. So Vedana is the point where we experience sensations, 
feelings in the body as pleasant or unpleasant. See? That's a given. That's, 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 the, um, that's what the psychophysical organism does. You know, it experiences things and gives us feelings. Uh, <clears throat> but then it's this other business, this tanha, you know, which we've talked about this morning. So that psychology can be translated to all areas of pleasures and joys in our lives. So it's never, see, this is the great thing about the spiritual life. Nothing is ever destroyed. See, the only thing the Buddha said was destroyed was greed, hatred, and delusion. So everything's handed back, see, handed back, purified of its kinks. Um, because of his style of uh, talking about his Dharma in a, in a more negative sense, uh, really to undermine concepts about the self and rebirth and all that, reincarnation, he tended to favour uh, the sort of negative approach. So saying that there is, see we quote it in the morning, there is a not born, a not done. What does that mean? See, there is a not born. What is it? You see. <laughs> So of course, he won't go that far. Well, he does actually. Uh, he does occasionally. But that's his preferred method. So of course, people would say, well, you're an annihilation. You're a nihilist. You know, there's not this, not that. So, so there's nothing. So therefore, you're a nihilist. So he would constantly say, no. He said, no. The only thing that's annihilated is greed, hatred, and delusion. And delusion, by delusion, fundamentally, he means this idea, feeling, notion of a self. So when we're looking at uh, pleasure, you see, when we're looking at uh, pleasure, we're not trying to get rid of pleasure, we're trying to take something out of our relationship with pleasure, trying to, trying to reform that relationship. And it's the same with suffering, see? It's not as though we can ever get rid of physical suffering, it's just part and parcel of the body's way of being in the world. Pain. But we can do something about our relationship to it. Yeah? Same with relationships. We have difficult relationships. Yeah? So you can't do anything about the sort of personality clash, but you can find a way of being with it where it's not so painful. <laughs> or take the pain out, you know, just accept the person as they are. And that process we call the process of liberation. See, that's, that's what we're doing, process of liberation. So when we go back and we start um, with actually, you know, how do we then bring it into daily life? How does the practice that we do in, in sitting meditation relate to our daily practice? Um, then that's really what our task is. And if we can't relate it, if there's a distinction to be, if there's a, a, a hair's breadth of separation between the practice of meditation 
and the rest of our lives. We've lost it. Because the Buddha's teaching is centered upon a type of being in the world that we call mindfulness. So you're you're here all the time. You're bringing yourself back into the present moment all the time. And the big trick of that is uh, this business of relaxing. Can't sort of overstress that really. And this relaxing into the present moment, you see, stopping, just allows you to recognize what's there, what's actually driving you at this present time, and allowing it to become very conscious. Okay? And you can, you can let go of things that have been accumulated. And that way, you not only reserve your energy, you actually take control of your life. You know, well, uh, uh, for instance, when, when, when sometimes, uh, you know, uh, one is late for work, you, you find yourself late for work, so there's this anxiety about being late for work, you, you know, miss the bus or something. And you can see that, that sort of anxiety sort of building up inside you, you see. <coughs> and you can't stop it, this is the point. You, you say to yourself, oh, I'm getting angry, I won't be anxious, you see, I'll just get there and start doing the work. <coughs> But to do that is to deny your anxiety. You're, you're, you're up against what's actually happening in your body. So you have to recognise, oh, well, this is an old conditioning of getting anxious about being late. You know, and you're going to be late, you're going to be late. What's the point of being anxious? <laughs> so you have to argue yourself out of it, get a different position, get a different perspective on it. But you can't do anything about the feeling of anxiety because that's coming from a different conditioning. That's, that's happening. But at least one can stop stoking it. That's the point. One can stop stoking it. And you do it by turning it into an object. There's your meditation. Right there. Sitting on the bus or running for the train or driving like mad. You see, you're right there. (laughs) You're right there with the feeling of anxiety. You know it's there. That's enough. You're doing your meditation. And your attention is on. Either that, if you're sitting in a a bus, or if you're driving, of course, you're sending to the traffic. So by making that your object, you see, and relaxing, in that, that takes a relaxation. You have to relax into the present moment. You mean you have to be with it, you see. So this practice of, you know, relaxing, uh, when you begin your meditation, of actually stopping and being in touch with your breath and relaxing into the present moment, here it's, it's easier because you're feeling pleasant, neutral feelings. At least it's, it's good to see them as pleasant, neutrally pleasant <laughs> Uh, feelings and and you know you're developing the attitude of just sinking of just collapsing you might say just stopping in the present moment and just accepting what's there normally speaking uh, we get this anxiety up we get this rush up we get to work and and we keep going it's like it's like it hasn't clicked that we've arrived even if we arrived early actually we're still rushing we're still (laughs) We're still moving at this tremendous pace that we've set ourselves on the perception that we're going to be late. Then when you're here by your... Now, now you know, we've got beyond the stage of, of just watching the breath and now you're open to these negative states within you, right? So let's, let's say, uh, you know, you think a bit depressed, a bit anxious and all that sort of stuff. And you're just sitting with the feelings, you see. 
Now, it's very interesting because in the discourse on how to establish mindfulness, the Buddha always talks about the inside and the outside, the inside and the outside. And often this outside is commented upon as being aware of other people, other people's states. So, you get to work and somebody else is anxious. I mean, you're okay, you're calm. It's worse if you're anxious, but they're anxious too, see? So they start putting this stress on you. So uh, normal people's reaction is to, is to uh, respond with, with stress themselves. I remember this phone call on a mobile in a train, you know, and this woman, she's, uh, her voice is rising and rising and rising, you know, and then there's suddenly this wonderful statement at the end. I'm stressed out! <laughs> No, I, I wanted to go over and say, look, have a cup of tea or something, you know, <laughs> relax, you know, there was a sort of a total desperation in it, you know, I thought, oh, God, she's in for a sort of breakdown or something. Now, here we are sitting with this, uh, say, in, in this sense, these negative emotions, what we're we doing, see? <coughs> we're attending to them, we're attending to them, like a nurse attends, we're attending to them, we know they're there, we're neither pushing them away, nor are we indulging them, right? So, somebody comes to us with stress, that's what you do. You attend to their stress. There's no need for you to get stressed because they're stressed. What's the point of that? So, as, as somebody approaches you with stress, or with anger, you see, or with their depression, you know, you attend to it. Your attention is on them, you see. And by doing that, by, by placing your interest into their attention, you undermine old habits of reacting to what they, to what they, uh, to the way you used to react before. Old reactions. You're not respond. You're not. You're, you're as it were undermining that process. The mind's very quick, isn't it? It'll flip very quickly. You see. You know, it's um, things happen just in a second. You know, you might be calm for a moment with somebody who's angry. Next minute, it's, you've lost it. <laughs> you know, you've you got yourself angry, you see. So these things, so you've got to keep that real sharp awareness, and in order to do that, it has to be backed with the right attitude, you see. And if we haven't really grasped the right attitude, then it's very difficult to, uh, to stop that reaction, even though we might be goodwilled. So we know that when we react to somebody who is in a, a negative state, it simply, you know, compounds the whole situation. You know, the Buddha's, um, you know, the, Buddha, the way the Buddha put it is that, you know, hatred is not <coughs> overcome with hatred, but anxiety is not overcome with anxiety either. You know, and depression is definitely not overcome. <laughs> it doesn't help, doesn't help the person who's depressed, but you becoming depressed. You both sort of be depressed with that lovely, <laughs> that lovely, uh, I can never remember the name of this comedian. He was, um, he was round about the war, you know, middle century, that sort of Second World War time. And uh, there's this scene, it's in black and white, you know, on the old TV, and I always remember it. And um, uh, there's this, um, he's about to jump off a London bridge, you see. And the policeman sees this and goes up to him and says, no, oh, excuse me, sir, he says, you know, in that old way, you know, excuse me, sir, uh, I do believe you are trying to... <laughs> and there's this conversation about you know, why he's jumping off the bridge and, and the policeman's all very up and saying all this sort of stuff, you know, why life is despairing, you see. And of course the sketch ends with them both jumping off. <laughs> that was brilliant, you know. 
that's, and that's, that's what happens, isn't it, when you, when you get caught up in somebody else's emotional state. So in our, in our relationships, and um, you know, both, uh, both in our personal, more intimate relationships and in, uh, in, in um, at work situations, it's, you know, it's just uh, maintaining that uh, attitude of knowing that if one reacts in a negative way to somebody else's negativity, then you both jump off the bridge. That's, that's as simple as that. So when that's actually been, when that's saturated, when that's really saturated your being, you see, then you've established a different attitude. That doesn't mean to say that the old conditionings aren't going to be there. So somebody comes to you in anger, you can feel, you can feel the old conditioning, want to bite, you see. But because you've established this attitude, uh, you very quickly know that all the person wants is for you to listen to them, isn't it? You know, when you're angry, isn't it, isn't it what, all you want to do is for them to listen to what you're saying? Not only listen in the sense of what you're saying, but what you're feeling, you know? Like, I am angry with you, you know? And it's been able just to uh, stay with that in that sort of attending way, you see. Not in this sort of, uh, I think, you know, the, I think the word is passive-aggressive, isn't it? Or aggressive passivity. I can't. <laughs> it's, like, it's like you're standing there, you know, and it's, you're not touching me. Well, I mean, that's really aggressive. And that's going to make them really want to bite. <laughs> but if you, if you manifest the fact that, you, you, you know, you feel their anger, you feel, you know, and, and that there's that empathy with their anger and whatnot, then... Uh, there's, uh, you know, there's, there's not that aggressive response. See? You, you've always got that magic word, sorry, you see. That drains people angry, you know. <clears throat> and then after you've done that, of course, you prove it was their fault anyway. So. <laughs> <laughs> you win anyway. No, you have to be careful of that. A <laughs> <laughs> one up, you know. Gotcha. <laughs> and it's um, now you can can you see the link between sitting with your own mental states and sitting with somebody else's, the inside and the outside. You know, you're taking the practice directly into your daily life. See? When it comes to insight. So all, all this really is about, you know, creating peaceful, you know, states around us. How does the, how is it that we have this special practice called vipassana, which is about seeing these three characteristics, you know? How does that work? How does that translate into your daily life? Because, I mean, it's only with those sorts of insights that there are radical changes. These, these are root changes, right? We can change our personalities. Uh, we can change our, uh, um, you know, attitudes, and we can... We can do a lot to change the surface psychology. You can even change your body. You can do a bit of exercise and stuff like that. But it's not getting to the root of it. The, the root problems are to do with these wrong ways of seeing things. So where we see permanence, there is impermanence. See? Now you might say, well, I can see impermanence everywhere. But the fact is, when, when, we're, when we're struck by crises, then of course we, we find it a big shock. It, it's the level of shock, it's the level of fear which shows us our relationship to a situation which we thought was steady, permanent, unchangeable. See? And then there's that business of the wanting and not wanting. So yeah, that's a bit more obvious, taking that into daily life, and we'll uh, come back to that. 
And then there's this other business of anatta, not self, you see. Now, when you're sitting like this, of course, it's a privileged position because you have found uh, this, um, this objective observer place, this observation post, as uh, Jnana Ponika calls it. He's a, a pretty famous writer in, in Theravada, uh, a German. He's, da- he's died now. An observation post. You found this observation post within yourself. So this is a, a fairly privileged position, you might say, because you're not moving, you're not doing anything, so now you can watch. You can watch the psychophysical organism in action, right? You can see the body feels, the, the heart emotes, and the mind thinks. Right? What else is there? See, what else is there? That's it. See, and uh, and you can you can see if things are changing. You can see how you're relating to what's inside you, and that's your that's something coming from this uh, wrong idea of, um, of of indulgence and resistance, and you can see. Um, this business of not me, not mine, as you, as you become, uh, shall we say, very clear, very, very uh, clear in your seeing that these are objects. So what's an object can't be the subject. It's as simple as that. Even the feeling of self-awareness, as we said, is an object. You're aware of a self, so you can't be that either. See? But it's, it's actually looking at that and constantly re-experiencing that makes these things very obvious to you. So now, how how can you have uh, you know uh, a spiritual insight in daily life? You know, when you when you sort of washing the pots, or when you're talking to somebody, or or when you're doing a job and all that. You see. Well, the understanding is that this intelligence that uh, is the knowing, this intuitive intelligence, which is prior prior to the mind with its thoughts. Yeah, it's prior to emotions. Right. Most people uh, think of intuitive intelligence as a feeling. Sure, it, it, it manifests, it, it sort of communicates its understanding through feeling, but it's not feeling, it's not emotion, and it's not the body either. See? And that's what we're discovering every time we access this observation post. Now, that intelligence is being primed every time you sit to begin to see life from these, from one of these three perspectives. Every time you sit, every time you make the conscious effort to see these three characteristics, it is being informed. It's informing itself. Right? And that manifests in your daily life in various ways. So, um, when this uh, tsunami, you know, struck Sri Lanka, there were some very well-meaning counsellors went there uh, to um, help people overcome their trauma. And they were surprised to find that they, they'd overcome their trauma. <laughs> it wasn't for them, for, for people uh, of Eastern mentality, it, you know, like it, it wasn't such a, a huge trauma that it would be, say, to a Westerner, because they accept, they have the attitude of karma, they have the attitude of impermanence. Everything's impermanent was the problem doesn't mean to say they don't suffer the loss of loved ones and all that, but there isn't this ongoing post-traumatic stress. See, all that's gone because of that easy acceptance of the way things are. So now we, you see, constantly reminding ourselves that there is impermanence. Everything is impermanence. You simply do not know what's going to happen in the next moment. You just don't know. You know, uh, just recently we've had these you know, Israeli attacks on, 
on Palestine and uh, on, on the West Bank, you see. So there were people there. I mean, they're in dangerous positions. They know they're dangerous, but they didn't. But some are some innocent people, you see. They just lives have just been blown out. That's it. Same with the Israelis. These um, not so many, not good, but these these bombs come over and like three people have died in in a, in a day just from these <laughs> rockets going over the over the fence. And so you're there, you see, you know, uh, frying your chips and getting your sausages ready, <laughs> and you you know you've got your HP sauce out, and it, and that's it. That's <laughs> You're up there looking down at all these sausages and all splattered all over the place and you're floating in midair. See? <laughs> I had a case of... I, I mean, you know, I have a very strange sense of humour, but... There was... A, <laughs> there was a, somebody I know is very... She's about 70 odd. And um, she met an old-time sweetheart. Okay, going way back to her early days. And... Uh, I mean, I got this story, you know, secondhand. And, uh, well, they fell in love, you know. And they got married, and she brought all her stuff over from America. You know, a couple of thousand pounds to bring all the stuff. They set up in this beautiful... I went to visit them, actually. Uh, they set up in this lovely little cottage, in a nice little twee uh, country village, you know, English country village. And um, not so long married. I mean, you know, come of a certain age, one has to accept things. It seems as though... He was just going for the toast out of the toaster when he collapsed. And I've always thought of the, of the horror of sort of dying as you're grabbing hold of a piece of toast. <laughs> uh, as you're lifting the piece of toast with marmalade to your mouth. <laughs> Unable to clamp your jaw over it. I think... <laughs> <laughs> it's all about, it, to me, it's a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's, <laughs> so it's a case of, you know, once, we, once we've grasped the impermanence, you see, it takes away that, the reverberation of disaster. It takes away the reverberation of loss, of grief, and that sort of stuff. There is just the grief. There is just the loss, you know. There's not behind it some feeling of injustice, you know. Uh, human beings are always clever at making themselves the centre of the universe, you know. It was a, such a clout to our ego when we realised that the Earth actually went round the sun. And, so. and then it was even worse when we were told that we were just animals. We just came... <laughs> that we just rose up from the, from the animals. We were, just, we were just fitter, that's all. That was, that was a... Uh, a hit, wasn't it, to the old ego? So this um, this sense of um, uh, hum- what we do as humans, we 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 um, project our sense of justice onto the universe. There's no justice in the universe. There's only laws. Yeah, you know, tsunamis happen because earthquakes happen under the sea or something, or a tectonic plate shift. Nothing to do with justice. Nothing to do with morality. To do with the way the earth is, with that sort of law, you know. So when, when, when people say, oh, well, you know, it's a shame he died young and all that, you know, like it was, it's a law, the body, the body runs along different laws from human justice, and that's, you know, that's the way it is.
So just getting the idea of impermanence, saturating the way we look at things, with imper- everything's impermanent, you see. Everything's imp- Even to get up in the morning and say to yourself, everything's impermanent, I don't know what's going to happen today. I think I know what's going to happen. I've got it all planned. <laughs> but I actually don't know what's going to happen, see. So that puts us into this, into this mind, you see, framework, you see. And uh, the Buddha's great statement about impermanence is that, you know, when we actually grasp impermanence in its real fullness, we realize there's nothing in the world worth holding on to. There's nothing in the world worth holding on to. Not even ourselves. This is the point. Now that, that, at first, you know, at first it might strike us sort of, uh, you know, a bit frightening and whatnot. But it's tremendously relaxing, isn't it? We don't have to hold on to anything anymore. Yippee! So, <laughs> so it's, like, it's like when somebody, you know, thieves something from you, you see. You know, we have this idea that uh, I, I possess something, see. So I possess my, uh, my um, mobile. It's my mobile. You know, I can prove it uh, in law. It's my, you know, this, this belongs to me. I'm attached to it. And then somebody steals it. And I'm still going around saying it's my mobile. <laughs> it's the thief's. The thief owns the mobile. <laughs> and I'm suffering like mad because they've got my mobile. You know, I didn't tell them, you know. And suddenly when you, <laughs> you realise actually you can't own anything, what you can do is use it. Ah, what a relief. See? And then, then you think, well, you know, the, the thief might need it more than me, and you're happy to give it away, just like that. Mm-hmm. So uh, that impermanence, you see, it seeps into an attitude, and that's what we. Um, that's important to understand. That see, this the eightfold path it begins with right understanding, and the second one is right attitude. See. And if it doesn't drop into an attitude, it just remains at this nice intellectual level. Oh yeah, everything arises and passes away. You know, what? There's so <laughs> a catastrophe when something does arise and pass away, you know. So it has to, it has to sink into an And that's a heart state. That's a, that's a, when I say heart state here, I'm not talking really about an emotion. So an attitude isn't an emotion. You have to be, have to be clear about that. An attitude is a way, of, a way of relating as an attitude. See? an understanding, everything's impermanent right now. How, how does, how, what does that mean in terms of my relationship to objects, my relationship to people, my relationship to myself, my own body? See, how does that relate? And that's your attitude. And then, of course, it manifests in the way we behave, in the way we do actually relate moment to moment. Now the next one, you see, which seeps into our daily life is this business of dukkha. So dukkha, remember, is one of these big words in Buddhism. It, uh, it sort of covers everything that uh, makes, us, makes us unhappy in the, in the widest sense of that meaning. You know, from the trivialist, triv- trivialist, trivialist things, <laughs> something like that. The most trivial, that's better. From the most trivial thing to, you know, catastrophes, awful things. The whole gamut of human misery is, in, is contained in this word dukkha, which actually means a hard place. That's what it means. This is a hard place. And when, we, when the Buddha says, you know, go into this, where is the suffering? Then it's to do with this psychology of wanting and not wanting. Wanting and not wanting. Now, just a very sort of change of attitude. You know, it's a, just 
the change of words, like, in, like you know, um, not getting what you want, but wanting what you get. So even that, wanting what you get, there's a sort of flip, you know, and you think, oh, then suddenly you're contented. You know, to be actually, to develop uh, the attitude of contentment with what I've got. Yeah? And of course, it's difficult in a society which is driven, you know, by consumerism, because consumerism, uh, you know, um, depends on your constant discontent. As soon as you're contented, that's it. Uh, you know, consumerism collapses, the whole industrial base. <laughs> There's a, I don't want a car, I'm content, I'll walk. So, what? <laughs> yeah, you can't do that. You've got to be discontent. So this whole feeling of, of, of constantly being discontent, the whole of the advert is to make you feel discontent. That's why you want that, you know, whatever it is, you know. But constantly saying to ourselves, constantly beginning from the platform of, uh, this is okay. This is the way it is, it's fine. It's not a problem. It's good. It's the way it is. Content, you see. And, and what you do is you begin to separate need from want. Sometimes you need, you need a, a new pair of shoes, and that's the end of it. So you go and get a pair of shoes. And then there's that, you know, there's that dividing line. So you now know this is need, this is want. Wants come up, sometimes, sometimes for various reasons, say to lift your spirit, you might, uh, you might buy yourself something rather pleasant or ask somebody else to do it. <laughs> but at least there's not this churning of the heart to go out and, and, and constantly you know, exercise this uh, retail therapy. Seeking comfort in, in shops, for heaven's sake. <laughs> Ridiculous. <laughs> I don't feel comfortable unless I'm in Marks and Spencer's. <laughs> well, it's ridiculous, isn't it? Yeah, I guess. Where do I go when I'm sad? Marks and Spencer's. <laughs> I mean, it's, when I feel depressed, I go to Marks and Spencer's. <laughs> you know, it's like it's been a disaster. Woolworths is like. <laughs> like it's a catastrophe. Woolworths has gone. You know, oh my God. There's <laughs> a lot of weird sort of ways of relating to the world. <laughs> so you can see that <clears throat> even now, see, we're, we're watching, we're watching the suffering of wanting, not wanting. You know, a, a desire comes up. We want to think about this. We want to plan our holiday, you know, and we're constantly pulling ourselves off and feeling that, that strong desire, that, that willfulness in us, you see. When it's something unpleasant, you see, that's even more, that's sort of more difficult, but to be able to be uh, at, to be able to be easy with unpleasantness, see? Now, it's cold. The difference between a room temperature and outside is, is vicious. <laughs> and, you know, our attitude is to sort of uh, resist the cold. We sort of, you know, rush from the bungalow to here to get, to get out of the cold instead of sort of greeting it. Ah, cold, great. You know, <laughs> just, ah, you know, the freshness of it, you know. I'm not suggesting you catch a cold, you understand? And uh, to take that attitude into daily life. You can do it. You can do it. But, you see, and again, it's sort of reminding ourselves, this constant self-reminder. So as soon as we see ourselves passing a shop and wanting that, yeah, hold on. See, just, just to pull it back, you know, pull back that, that sort of energy, you see. And of course, it, it can be, and all that energy, by the way, that, that we're using in, in, in getting what we want, it's not, it's not being wasted. You can displace it. You can you, Take your interest elsewhere. 
you know, in the old days, they used to talk about sublimation, sort of a religious idea of sublimating your desires, you know. You don't hear that word often these days, you know. And that's because, uh, really, I suppose, through the agencies of uh, people like Freud, people think that there are certain instincts and desires that are blocked or locked into certain things, like, like our sexual appetite. They're just stuck there and you can't get rid of them, you know. But in, the, but in, in spiritual terms, sublimation means that you guide that energy and put it somewhere else. It's all it is. The, the mind and body, as we know from, from our uh, great quantum physics, is that it's just energy. So if you decide to displace the energy, you see, away from, say, um, eroticism, uh, and you put it into art, then that's your sublimation, you know? That's what you mean by sublimating. And that transference, that transformation of energy uh, away from desires which you see are unwholesome, right, to desires which you see are wholesome, is part and parcel of that process, right? I mean, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that erotic desires are per se unwholesome, and they obviously have their place in time, but, <laughs> but if, if you find them sort of cringing on the mind, you know, sort of obsessive, then it's a case of slowly displacing them, putting our interests elsewhere, you know. So it's the same with shopping, you see. We've put, we've, uh, people put a, a lot of interest in shopping, you know, in, in fashion and all that sort of stuff. And all they have to do is just to draw their interest elsewhere, just to sort of re-educate themselves. That's all it is. It's just a process of re-education. But they won't do it unless they see the suffering. That's the point. And the, the problem with pleasure, the problem with uh, joy, indulgent joy, is that while you're in it, it's great. That's the problem. And you're prepared often to suffer the consequences so you can have this bit of joy. It's only when you get the comeback, you know. I was just thinking there of a friend who, uh, uh, friend's father, you see, uh, always smoked, always smoked, you see. Then he had a heart attack, and he suddenly stopped, just like that. <laughs> he got the comeback. It's unfortunate that it was so strong a comeback, but it just shows, you know. Now, what the comeback of all indulgence is, you know, the the, uh, the craving. <coughs> the possibility of grief if you lose what it is you treasure you know the anxiety that once you've got something the anxiety of losing it that's why we've got a massive insurance industry and of course the frustration not getting it when you want see? getting what you want so by taking this uh, inner understanding of wanting not wanting into daily life you see it moves you towards contentment I see, that's the joy, that's the subtle joy. And that's, that's another reason why to develop this calmness on the breath and to begin to see it is actually a very delicious place to be. You know? Often we find it, but we do it in contrast to uh, agitation, in contrast to stress. You know, that we'll, we'll go home and just flop in the chair and just for a moment there's no radio, there's no nothing, we just sort of sink into the quietness of the moment. We might walk into a park or come out into the country or sit in the garden. And just for a moment, we'll actually sink into that space, to that little bit of peace, you see. But we'll do it as a sort of um, antidote <laughs> to another thing. Whereas what we want to do is to develop it as a prime condition, something that we can return to at any time. And as it were, remains a substrate 
beneath our psychology. There's always this deep sense of calmness within us, no matter what uh, what we're doing on the surface. You see, and again, it's just training. It's just training ourselves to do that. So the breath there is uh, is you know watching the breath, feeling the breath, seeing it as a place where we can develop this calmness and peace is directly related into daily life. Because you can always come back to your breath. You know, when I say stop every so often, you know, just come to a, an end of what you're doing, you see, and catch what, what it is you've accumulated, some anxiety, some stress, whatever, and allow it to pass, there's always the breath, you see. And the breath will be a place that you'll go to, just like your garden or, your, or the park. It's a place where you just find that inner peace for a moment. Now the sense of not-self is um, <clears throat> one of the key factors and it's in, in his second talk. The second talk he gives to his five disciples at the end of which they're all fully liberated by the way. He uh, says clearly, he says, um, that which arises and passes away cannot be under your control. Now every time you get into the self, every time one of the one of the uh, um, ways the manif that the, the self manifests is the desire to control power. Every time you see yourself wanting to control a situation, control a person, you'll know it's coming from yourself. That's not the same as uh, being in charge or being an authority in which you are given the power to make decisions. Right? I mean, that's, that's a, an occasion where you take on responsibility and you try to make the wisest decisions you can. But in terms of this other business, uh, where things are not going your way and you're getting angry, where you're getting angry with your, uh, with your spouse, your partner, because they're not doing what you want them to do, or your kids, <laughs> and you're getting frustrated and, and anxious and all that. And that's all to do with this sense of wanting to control, you see. So again, it's this business of taking that into daily life and just recognizing that, you know, our control over things is, is you know, is, is pretty limited and that things happen outside of our control and that there's, you know, in the old phrase, you've got to go with the flow. You've got to be in harmony with what's happening. Uh, that harmony needn't, is not always pleasant, huh? but you're actually moving with it. You're not trying to control something which is actually outside your control. And I think this comes most obvious with, uh, you know, when we get involved in politics. Um, politics in the wider sense of the meaning, people's issues like, you know, the business that's going on with climate change and, um, um, you know, the economy and all that sort of stuff, which are uh, not to be confused with sort of small party politics. Um, one can see what has to be done. Everyone can see what has to be done, but there's not the political will. You can see it, you see. So there, there, there arises in people's own frustration, you see. And that's really not accepting these two rings that are around us, the first one being one of power, what you can do to help the situation. And if you step beyond that, you're into frustration, you're into despair, see. And, uh, and that takes an act of humility. Humility here doesn't mean, you know humble, humble, it just means seeing yourself as you really are. That's what humility originally meant. 
And the other ring is, is influence, whereby you can get other people to do what you think is right. Beyond that, there's nothing you can do. Hmm? Nothing you can do in any physical sense, but we do have another outlet which allows us to feel at least that we are, uh, shall we say, in communion. You know? And that is, of course, to offer metta. I mean, that's the joy of metta, that you can do nothing, but at least you can send out you know, thoughts of intentions, goodwill intentions towards a situation. Even if we don't believe that they actually affect people, at least it's um, a way in which we might feel within ourselves that we're doing what we can, full stop. You know, we develop a, a goodwill. Now, such is the quality of this intuitive intelligence, you see, is that it can have insights at any time. And it's well known in the Mahasi tradition that insights don't normally come when you're sitting. It's when you get up and do something that the insights come. And the reason is that often when we're sitting, we're very subtly trying to achieve something, trying to see something. And then when we get up from the posture, we sort of say, all right, nothing happened there, forget it, you know, and then off we go. <laughs> and, but we, re, we, we retain that mindfulness, and lo and behold, there are these sudden insights that come. Because this intelligence has been released from this, uh, from the craving, been released from the self, just for that moment. So it's not as though insights can't come at any time of the day, any time you're awake, once this mindfulness is established. In fact, the Mahasi's teacher, that's the Mahasi, in case you didn't know, when he was about 50, I suppose. Um, the Mahasi's teacher is said to have intuited in uh, a Nietzsche the, uh, the impermanence as a direct experience of momentary arising and passing away as a dog passed by. There wasn't a dog, there was just a dogging. The dog arose and passed away momentarily. Because that's the teaching of a Nietzsche. It isn't something which is changing in the sense that uh, you might take a piece of clay and you make a cup and then you screw it up and you make a saucer. So it's the same clay. And the Buddhist teaching is quite radical. It actually collapses into potential or nothing. You can't say nothing. It collapses into a potential. It's not there. And out of there, it arises again. Right? That's, that's, that's what's happening here. The universe is stroboscopic. It's not continuous in the Buddhist teaching. So for him, that was a, a deep enough insight uh, for what we call one of the paths and fruits, uh, stream entrance or, or whatever level he was at. So that's, I hope I've uh, sort of made fairly clear the intimate connection between your meditation and daily life. If I happen, you, you can leave little notes of complaint. <laughs> <laughs> Kindly. Notes of complaint. <laughs> and remember that the, uh, the root thing is this constant establishment of mindfulness. And just as a last word... In the discourse on uh, my on loving kindness, can you pass me your book there, uh, which we chant in the morning? You see, the Buddha is urging us to develop this loving kindness, and um, 
at the end, you see. Why does he say it now? Just a minute. See, he says, um, whether you are standing, walking, sitting, or lying down. So those are the same instructions for mindfulness. Sitting, walking, right? In other words, in any posture, doing anything. So long as you're awake, so long as you are mindful, you should develop this mindfulness. And here, he's talking about a mindfulness saturated with loving kindness. Saturated with goodwill. That's a that's a bit better. Goodwill. Because it's not meant to be an emotional thing. Is it? This, they say, is the noblest way to live. And if you do not fall into bad ways, but live well and develop insight, and are no longer attached to all the desires of the senses, then truly you will never need to be reborn to this world again. So there you have it. See? Mindfulness saturated with goodwill. And in the morning when I, uh, you know, after chanting, I say, you know, make your resolution for the day, you see. That's, that's an important moment, you see, because that's going to set the underground tone of the day. So find a little phrase for yourself, you know, to live, um, to, uh, to live consciously with goodwill or something like that which strikes you as the way you want to be. It's also good to, uh, to also create something where, you know, uh, something that you're not going to do. You know, you're not going to go down that road today. Keep it on today, you see. Don't go beyond today. It gets depressing. <laughs> I think I've got a bit less for the rest of my life. <laughs> see, but if you do it day by day, it's manageable, isn't it? Just today. You know, today I'll be good. See, Tomorrow I'll, I'll play hell, but today, <laughs> if you keep doing that, we, we should arrive. You see. So I can only hope my words have been of some assistance. May you be liberated from all suffering sooner rather than later. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.